I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The following program contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out, that's when the cannibalism started eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, I wear a male car with his hands to a coffee table and this thing's a pull out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would do, who would, who, who's, who's life with me. I'd harm someone each time I'd kill someone to be an enormous amount of uh, especially at first, uh, enormous amount of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse do it again to come back even stronger. Lovable rogue Melbourne Mick Sayers was always looking for the next sure thing. This chronic punter had a lifelong pathological addiction to gambling. Mick had it so bad he would bet on anything and do whatever it took to feed his habit, including race fixing, arm robbery, drug dealing and murder. In the end, he had to wager the last thing of value he had, his life. Brenda Nicholas was a con artist and thief who preyed on elderly people, often by pretending to be a psychic, before taking them for all they were worth. In 2011, she and her gang of 'er ne'er-do-wells murdered 70-year-old Navy veteran and two-time Purple Heart recipient Patrick Fleming just so that they could steal his valuable coin collection. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. Now before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. Patrons have access to dozens of other episodes, including our controversial and somewhat foolhardy early (laughs) stuff. And levels above $5 receive free stickers and handmade Barney badges. They also get uh, put into the draw for our monthly giveaway. That's the truth. Mm. All right, Tara, let's get murdery. Brenda Nicholas was born to a Romanian family in New York in 1971. There isn't much information available about her early years, but apparently they were tough. She claims to have been raised into a life of petty crime and taught to steal at an early age. But since she never stops trying to scam everyone, it's hard to believe any of the shit that dribbles from her mouth. Was Brenda really raised like the artful dodger from Oliver Twist? Or was this just yet another of her schemes? 
Either way, she did end up leading a ragtag gang of thieves and no-good nicks who liked to pick a pocket or two. By the time Brenda was an adult, she had a record for robbery and scamming people in New York, Seattle and California. She toured. She and her crew were part of an organised crime group known as the Romers, who committed financial crimes against vulnerable adults, used fake identities and moved around a lot to try to avoid getting caught. Elder abuse? It's not just for Christmas. No, no, and it's not cool. And it's not cool. Mm-mm. Brenda's scam of choice was to pretend to be a tarot card reader and fortune teller. She'd tell her victims that they had issues, then offer to help them and extort them for all they were worth. Brenda preyed on senior citizens. She'd gain their trust and then convince them to let her handle their money. According to the book Killer Scammer, The True Story of Brenda Nicholas by Anna Benson, in summer 2007, Brenda was working as a psychic and a tarot reader at a street fair in Seattle's International District. Since using her real name isn't her thing, she had to come up with a fancy fake psychic name. Uh, any guesses on what she came up with, Barney? Hmm. Tata's Taliban, the sexy psychic? No. Balls out Barney and he's all seeing jorts? Actually, yes, that's exactly what she called herself. How did you know? That's my name. (laughs) (laughs) I like that your jorts are so all seeing. Oh, they are. Mm -hmm. You'll see everything. (laughs) That's why they call you Balls Out Barney. Um, So anyway, she didn't go with either of those and she did not go with Urena Geller or Johnine Edwards either. Instead, she called herself Lady Monica. That's not really the most psychic-sounding name I've ever heard. I figure she must have been a big fan of the TV show Friends. <laughs> I won't be there for you. It was at the street fair that 80-year-old Sylvia Sutton was unlucky enough to cross her path and cross her palm with more than silver. Lady Monica certainly looked the part, decked out in flowing velvet with a headscarf, some scented candles and a pack of tarot cards. Sylvia was going through an extremely rough time in her life. She'd been suffering from some health issues and depression after the recent demise of a romantic relationship. Sylvia popped in to get her palm read, hoping to hear things would improve in her future. Instead, Lady Monica told her that she had a grey aura around her and she desperately needed to have it cleansed and balanced. A grey aura is serious business and Sylvia was suitably concerned. But luckily for Sylvia, Lady Monica was an expert at both cleansing and balancing auras. Well, that is fortunate for Sylvia. Oh, very. But look, it wasn't a cheap or simple process. Oh, it never is. No, no. Sylvia started paying through the nose, handing over handfuls of cash in the hope of brightening up her stanky aura. Sylvia was lonely and had very little contact with her family. Lady Monica, who said her real name was Monica Marks, manipulated Sylvia into becoming dependent on her. She controlled her finances and every aspect of her life, including which homes for the elderly she lived in. Brenda, aka Lady Monica, had Sylvia take pills which left her quite out of it and used her to meet other elderly potential victims to scam before moving her to a new home. Oh, you've got to take some of those aura, aura brightness. Yeah, yeah, that was probably what she said they oh, were. Oh, you've got to get that chakra oh, insurance. But, but, but the aura brightness make me sleepy. Oh, well, that means they're doing their job. Oh, that's right. After several months of spiritual treatment, Sylvia was told her aura was still 50 shades of grey and not in a trashy, sexy way. So Brenda decided it was time to bring in the big guns. She told Sylvia that Father Thomas was a renowned spiritual healer who could help her have a sparkling, well-balanced aura. 
Father Thomas had tons of superpowers and was very expensive, but Lady Monica swore by him. Fuck. Uh, sounds like he's worth it. Yeah, don't you think? Yeah. So you'll be surprised to learn, Barney, that Father Thomas wasn't really a priest. He was just another con artist. In fact, he was Brenda's de facto husband, Archie Marks. Father Thomas and Lady Monica extorted an average of 20 grand a month out of Sylvia. They screwed her out of over a million dollars during the next four years. Sylvia was moved to the Four Freedoms Assisted Living Apartment Complex for the Elderly in 2011. Here she became friends with 70-year-old Patrick Fleming, who had moved in the year before. Patrick was a decorated Vietnam veteran who'd served his country in the Navy, earning two Purple Hearts and other medals. He was a friendly bloke who loved to chat and got along well with his neighbours. Although in the later part of his life, Patrick was living life to the fullest. He had met his fiancée and fellow resident, 80-year-old Rosemary Garnett, at the Four Freedoms, and they were head over heels for each other. Gotta say, Barney, that Rosemary's a bit of a cougar. Get some, girl. Yeah, go Rosemary. Yeah. Now, although she'd been married before, Rosemary proclaimed Patrick to be the love of her life. Both felt very lucky to have found each other and to have another chance at love. They intended to get married and make the most of the years they had left together. Oh, that's beautiful. I know. The end. The end. Nothing bad happens to Mm -mm. them, right? Nah, they're still really happy right now. We're going to visit them after this. Oh, cool. Yeah. The friendly couple welcomed lonely Sylvia to the community and invited her to do things with them. No, not like that. (laughs) Oh, wow, you know, a bit of key party, elderly key party. Nice. Mm, Yeah, I think they had swipe cards, but that's equally effective. Patrick would help Sylvia around as she had trouble walking more than a short distance and the two would go to Starbucks for coffee together quite regularly. The residents noted that Sylvia often seemed a bit out of it. While hanging out at Patrick's apartment, he insisted on showing his new friend Sylvia his prized possessions, his war medals and valuable collection of rare coins and uncut bills. Patrick had been an avid coin collector for over 40 years and would often visit the Bitter Lake Post Office for mail-order coin transactions. He was such a kind and generous man, he even bought Christmas presents for some of the post office staff. Sounds like a top bloke. It was a top bloke. I used to collect coins when I was a kid. I had around 50 cent piece. Ooh, if only you still had it now, you could be a millionaire. I do. Well, you're a millionaire. You know how much it's worth? Uh, $5.20. 50 cents. (laughs) Really? It's not even worth more than that? No, it's probably worth a couple of dollars. Probably not much. I don't know. I'm going to rob you later. Patrick's fiancée, Rosemary, had warned him about showing off his coin collection as the Four Freedoms Assisted Living Apartment Complex was in a neighbourhood with a pretty high crime rate. Brenda a.k.a. Lady Monica, had instructed Sylvia to keep an eye out for aura-cleansing valuables and she was so drugged up and under her spell that she did what she was told. So she told her about his coin collection. Ah. Yeah, so Sylvia told Brenda about the coin collection. Brenda came to visit Sylvia at the apartment complex and pretended to be her niece, introducing herself as Anne Sutton. Sylvia took her fake niece to Patrick's unit and asked him to show her his coin collection. Patrick didn't view the two women as a threat and happily complied. Brenda's interest in the coin collection spiked after she asked Patrick how much they were worth and he told her $60,000. Whoa. She noticed that he didn't lock up his collection for safekeeping. Instead, he kept it in a briefcase in his unit. Brenda took this information back to her no-good-nick gang and they started plotting to rob Patrick. 
The first thing they decided to do was quickly move Sylvia to a different apartment complex to ensure that she and they weren't connected to the robbery. Several months later, on the night of December 8th, 2011, Rosemary and Patrick were at his apartment making travel plans for their honeymoon when Rosemary realised she hadn't taken her medication. She went back to her apartment to get it. When she got there, she saw that she was out of orange juice. Hoping Patrick had some, she called him, but he didn't pick up. She found that strange, but didn't think too much of it at the time. A bit later, Rosemary went back to Patrick's apartment and knocked on the door, but he didn't answer. For orange juice? The door was ajar, so she went inside. That's when she saw Patrick's body lying on the floor in a pool of blood. Rosemary was horrified to realise he'd been attacked in the short time she was gone and called 911. When medics arrived, they pronounced Patrick dead at the scene. Police who responded to the 911 call noted Patrick had put up a fight against his attackers before he'd been violently stabbed several times and had his throat cut so deeply he was almost decapitated. They figured from the strength needed to commit this crime that the perpetrator or perpetrators were probably not among the elderly residents of the assisted living facility. When questioning Patrick's neighbours, one of them said he'd noticed three strangely dressed women in the hall that night who were too young to be residents. He said that they appeared to be in costume and were wearing wigs, but unfortunately he didn't recognise them. Detectives noticed Patrick's precious coin collection and medals were missing and figured that robbery was the motive for his murder. They wondered who could have even known about the existence of his coin collection. Apparently it was everyone. Yeah, pretty much. The area of the floor where Patrick had been murdered was covered in blood, but detectives also noticed a bloody handprint on a chair several metres away. They collected samples of all the blood stains, hoping that Patrick's murderer had injured themselves in the attack and left their DNA behind. Um, yeah, that happens a lot because the knives get slippery with all the blood. Yeah, that's right. During their inquiries, the police heard from several residents about the strange disappearance of Sylvia Sutton. It was unusual for residents to just leave the Four Freedoms without saying goodbye to anyone. Investigators decided to try to track her down to see if she could shed any light on the case. When Detective Steiger searched police databases for Sylvia Sutton, he was surprised to find that she was part of another investigation. She'd recently shaken free of the clutches of Lady Monica, aka Brenda, and moved to an apartment in Bellevue. Sylvia had no money left. Brenda had bled her completely dry, which was probably why she let her go. Moved on to the next mark. Yep. Mm. Yep, sucking everything out of everyone. Sylvia reported that she'd been defrauded of over a million dollars by Lady Monica, who she believed was named Monica Marks. Seattle's elderly exploitation unit had been investigating her claims. Oh, uh, so watch that show. Yeah, elderly exploitation unit. Yeah, yeah. But hang on, are you picturing it like just cops, um, you know, looking into these crimes against the elderly? Or are you picturing like Angela Lansbury and... Um, Matlock. Matlock, like and, solving crimes now. And that guy in the wheelchair. What's his name? Um, the not- guy from Breaking Bad with the bell? Ding, 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 ding. No. 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 <laughs> uh, not Stephen Hawking's. Not okay. Patrick Stewart in X-Men. Um, Who? Ironside. Oh, okay. I don't really know him that much. But oh. um, Betty White, she could be on it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. I like the sound of this. If you're listening, Dick Wolf, that one's a freebie. Yeah. Detective Pamela Johns told the detectives investigating Patrick's murder that Sylvia had told her Lady Monica had made her hand over her money in exchange for cleansing her aura. She said she drugged Sylvia with sleeping pills, which explained her out-of-it demeanour that the residents of the Four Freedoms had commented on. 
Sylvia also told them that Lady Monica had used her to get to other older people to steal from. Detective Johns was able to give Detective Steiger an address for Lady Monica, but finding her wouldn't be easy, as Sylvia didn't even know her real name and she'd since moved on from that address. Detectives checked Sylvia's phone records and found a number she'd used to reach Lady Monica. They were able to trace the owner of the number to Brenda Nicholas and another woman named Gilda Ramirez. Gilda was a vulnerable woman that Brenda had met years earlier in New York who had become ostracised from her entire family after borrowing so much money to give to Brenda for her psychic services. Like, she got ostracised, she had no one, and so she now worked with Brenda scamming other people. Well, that's the thing about psychic services. They always try to upsell you. You know, you got, oh, yeah. You, yeah, you got to get that true coat. You got to get that chakra insurance, tail insurance. Yeah, yeah. You know, you probably uh, need to get some scented candles that smell like I don't know, roses and bullshit. Yeah, at least twelve dream catchers. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you can't catch yeah. all your dreams with just one. Well, that's right. <laughs> Detectives also discovered that the Kirkland Police Department had previously invested Brendan Nicholas and Gilda Ramirez for theft and trafficking in stolen property. When they looked more closely into Brenda, they believed that she might be involved as she had a criminal record bigger than a baby's arm holding an apple. Mostly it was for extorting and deceiving people and pinching stuff. She'd been arrested in California for drugging an elderly man and making him give her money. Brenda would offer to take him out for a milkshake probably a strawberry-flavoured milkshake, and then she'd put drugs in it, and then she'd escort the drugged-up old gentleman to a cash machine to get her filthy mitts on his hard-earned bucks. Disgusting. She's a horrible person. In January 2012, Brenda had also been arrested for robbery. She'd rented a property from a 60-year-old man who died of an apparent stroke a month later. A family member of his, Judith Perkins, told reporters, My brother-in-law trusted her. I don't know if she had anything to do with his death, but I spent a whole year looking into it. Brenda was not charged in relation to his death, but I wouldn't be surprised if she, like, cleansed his aura to death. Sounds like something she'd do. Brenda then stayed at the property without paying rent and damaged the house significantly. When she was eventually evicted, she stole anything that wasn't nailed down from the house, probably including the kitchen sink. This was a party trick of hers, not paying rent and pinching more stuff. There were actually three legal complaints against her for it. Now, Brenda's excuse was that she'd done it to get money to help her sick mother in Florida, but there was no evidence that this was the case. She just liked lying, like her nose, woo, so long, it was so long, it like went around the world and poked her in her own butt. Detectives showed Sylvia a lineup of pictures and she identified Brenda as being Lady Monica. Ah, photo board. That was it. Kirkland police officers obtained a warrant for Brenda's last known address in Linwood, hoping to find something to trace her back to Patrick Fleming's murder. Although Brenda had already moved on, because that's what she does. She pinches shit and she moves on. Officers seized several items, including a leather briefcase. Inside the briefcase were documents with the full names of Patrick Fleming, Brenda Nicholas and Sylvia Sutton on them. That's a little bit incriminating, isn't it? It is. But the authorities needed more evidence as they were worried that Brenda could say that she took the briefcase that one time that she posed as Sylvia's niece and visited Patrick. Like it doesn't really connect her to the murder as such. They wanted more The foreign DNA found from the bloody handprint at the crime scene wasn't Brenda's. It actually belonged to an unidentified man, which led the police to believe that she had at least one accomplice. 
The police decided to put Brenda under surveillance, hoping to figure out who her accomplice was so they could put him at the scene of Patrick's murder and also nab Brenda in the process. So the cops found out that Brenda had a meeting with her parole officer in March 2012 and they picked up surveilling her from there with an entire task force, hoping that she'd lead them to her accomplice. They followed her to a palm reading shop she was working out of in North Seattle. They filmed everyone going in and out of the shop. Her teenage sons were in there a lot, but the cops thought her accomplice was more likely to be another man named Archie Marks. He was a member of the Romany community who was Brenda's de facto husband. And he's also the guy that she claimed was Father Thomas. Ah. Mm-hmm. Very magic. Many skills. He'll polish your aura up so shiny that you'll be able to see your own butt in it. Desperate to get a hold of Archie's DNA to compare it to the unidentified male DNA they found at the murder scene, police picked up one of his cigarette butts after he'd discarded it. Forensic testing showed that it was not a match. So whose DNA was it, Barney? I bet it was a menthol. Menthol cigarette, yeah, probably. On July 2nd, 2012, investigators working on Sylvia's case arrested Brenda for fraud. So she must have been a pretty shit psychic to not see that one coming. They charged Brenda with 50 counts of theft over it. They continued investigating everyone Brenda hung out with and eventually they were led to a guy named Charles Youngbluth who worked as Brenda's driver and was apparently in love with her, though that is very difficult to believe. Mm. Mm. She's not very lovable. Although Charles had no prior convictions, they brought him in to question him to see if he'd seen anything sus going on. Charles eventually cracked under pressure and told detectives that he'd seen Patrick's stolen coin collection in Brenda's possession. Cops described Charles as wimpy and whiny, like you, Barney. That's Um, what it says in my Tinder profile. (laughs) They didn't think he was involved in the murder, but they took a DNA sample from him anyway. Now, they were incredibly surprised to find a couple of days later that Charles was a match to the DNA left at the scene. And of course, you know, they arrested him and brought him into the station again. Yay. Thus begins one of the most sublime interrogations that ever there was. I saw footage of it on an episode of Killer Instinct called Senseless in Seattle. Now, in the footage, Charles Youngbluth is rocking a mullet and he's nude except for a pair of jorts. His naked torso is sunburnt to a hot pink hue and I was a little disappointed to notice that he has a bigger rack than me. <laughs> really, I was like, oh, I'm a little sad about that. Oh. Oh, similar size. It's all right, Tara. You've got a good personality. <laughs> well, that's not true. <laughs> Jesus Christ, if you're going to lie to me, make it believable. <laughs> I said good. I didn't say great. No, nah, even that's too much of a stretch, Bulgaria. What? The detectives challenged Charles with a DNA match and pushed him to spill the beans. He denied he had anything to do with any beans, but eventually folded like a cheap card table in a soft breeze. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Charles said that he and Brenda were armed with kitchen knives and there was another woman named Gilda Ramirez with them on the night of Patrick's murder. All three of them were dressed up as women. Yep, Charles got his Mrs. Doubtfire on. He tootsied it up hard. Now, in the reenactment of Patrick's murder on Killer Instinct, Charles is dressed in, like, tatty, holy fishnets with a pair of thongs. It's a lot of look, and I hope it catches on. Because it's actually hard to get your flip-flops on over your fishnet stockings, I find. Yeah, I haven't tried. Also, it it would kind of, like, make people look at you funny. You're like, oh... 
There's a strange-looking lady with a wig on who's wearing fishnets and thongs. Yeah. You'd remember that. What's Tara doing in Seattle? That's what they (laughs) asked. The plan was, because Patrick already knew what Brenda looked like from the time she posed as Sylvia's niece and visited him, Gilda was supposed to knock on the door and ask to borrow Patrick's phone. Gilda told him she'd just moved in and her phone wasn't connected. Patrick questioned her story, so Brenda took matters into her own hands and shoved her dirty gang and Patrick inside his unit. Then she and Charles, Queen of the Desert, tackled Patrick to the floor and both of them stabbed him in the neck and body. Charles had stopped stabbing Patrick mid-attack, which pissed off Brenda so much that she actually stabbed Charles in the hand and called him a coward. Oh. So that's how the bloody handprint ended up on a chair at the crime scene. Okay. Now, Gilda assisted in the robbery but didn't harm Patrick as she'd rushed to the bathroom to vomit as soon as the attack started. Why didn't she get stabbed in the hand? Uh, she wasn't in stabbing distance at the, that point, oh, right, I don't think. Yeah. Now, once Patrick was dead, the three of them ransacked his place, looking for the briefcase he kept his coin collection in. Brenda's motive for killing Patrick was so that he couldn't finger her for the robbery. When questioned by the police, Gilda Ramirez's statement mirrored Charles's. Oh, they healed him with knives and then gave him a precious coin collection? No, that's, that's, that's no, a mirror that was image. The, the opposite. Oh. Brandon Nicholas was arrested and charged with one count of first-degree murder with deadly weapon enhancement. Under a separate cause number, she was charged with theft-related crimes committed from 2007 to 2012. So that was for all the stuff that she did on Sylvia and also the milkshake guy. Brenda pleaded guilty in that case to two counts of first-degree theft and one count of first-degree identity theft. On August 30th, Charles Youngbluth and Gilda Ramirez pleaded not guilty to Patrick Fleming's murder. They were locked up in King County Jail awaiting trial in early November when Gilda changed her mind and pleaded guilty to first-degree robbery, first-degree burglary and first-degree trafficking in stolen property. She was sentenced to six years. Charles struck a deal, agreeing to testify against Brenda for the prosecution. He pleaded guilty to Patrick's murder and got a 22-year sentence. Brenda Nicholas's murder trial began on November 8th. Her defence lawyer, Jonathan Newcomb, said that poor little Brenda had endured a shitty childhood in the Romani community and was forced to commit crimes to survive. Let me say the Romani community are quite misaligned. Uh, They're not all career criminals. No, no. And also, you can't believe anything Brenda says anyway. No. So, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't in any way be influenced by what she's saying here. Mm. Um, her lawyer said that Brenda couldn't read as well, which seems bloody impossible considering the amount of reading documents involved in, like, identity fraud and scamming people and well, signing yeah. them in and out of nursing homes. Maybe what he meant was that she couldn't read tarot cards because I'm pretty confident that's true. Mm. Brenda claimed to be the victim of domestic violence and that she had sent most of the money she stole to family members to pay her mother-in-law's medical bills. Remember last time she got caught, it was her mother's? Now it's her mother-in-law's. There's no evidence of any of this being true. When Brenda was on the stand, um, she decided to, to try, you know, clutching at a different straw and she blamed her de facto husband, Archie Marks, for the murder. Well, that'll keep the romance alive, won't it? No. Not like Sexy Barney does. Hey, baby. There was no proof to support this either. So running out of ideas, she tried to play the mum card for sympathy, weeping and telling the court that she had two teenage sons who were dependent on her to raise them. Laying it on thicker than anyone can stomach, she proclaimed to the judge, The boys are waiting for me, Your Honour. 
and then probably batted her eyelashes. A jury found Brenda Nicholas guilty of first-degree murder with a deadly weapon enhancement. She was sentenced for her counts of murder, theft and identity theft together in a single hearing. Superior Court Judge Teresa Doyle was not buying into any of Brenda's shit show at all. She sentenced Brenda to 34 years. That means that she'll be eligible for parole in her mid-70s. But the prospect of her being released at all irks me, since she destroyed so many people's lives. Like Patrick was murdered, Rosemary's heartbroken, Sylvia's not only broke now, but she's also racked with guilt about the part she inadvertently played in Patrick's murder. Yeah. She just creates like, oh, just a... And yeah, an awful turd ripple effect. Yeah, turd ripple effect everywhere she goes. She stinks mm. up everything. Now, after sentencing, Judge Doyle told the press, I think Miss Nicholas is a danger to society. The heartlessness, the cold-bloodedness and the inhumanity of Patrick Fleming's murder were both striking and disturbing. Yes, they were. Brenda is locked up in the Washington Correction Centre for Women and, quite frankly, I hope she stays there. Hmm, me too. Yeah, not cool, Brenda, not cool. Not cool, Brenda. Wow, what a story. So, Barney... Is it time for True Crime Toilet Wine? I believe it's called True Crime Nerd Time, no, Tara. No, it isn't. True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time. I love True Crime. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book. Movie, TV series, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. Are you itchy, Tara? You can record your voice, just do it on your phone and we'll play it, or write it and we'll read it out. And we have one here from Angela, and she writes, Hi Barney and Tara, here's my review of Netflix Mindhunter Season 2. Ooh, that was a fun watch. Now we can all agree that Season 1 of Mindhunter is great. It had a completely different approach to crime procedurals. Created by David Fincher, maker of such films as Seven, Zodiac and The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, all revolving around serial killers, Mindhunter is apparently inspired by the investigations and writings of John Douglas and Mark Olshaker. Well, yeah, it is based on the book Mindhunter, which is about John Douglas for sure. Mm. Fincher directed the first three episodes of the new season and two episodes are directed by the great Australian film director Andrew Dominic, yes. who did such films as Killing Them Softly, The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford and my personal favourite, Chopper. Chopper. Season two goes along the same line as the first season. Holden Ford, yes, it's a funny name, to, especially to Australians, <laughs> and his cohorts interview serial killers to see how they tick. This time they interview the likes of David, son of Sam Berkowitz, and Charlie Manson, amongst others, along with the return of Edmund Kemper. BTK drops in and out, being creepy and murdery also. Mm -hmm. But the main thrust of the narrative is the team's efforts in tracking down the Atlanta child killer. There are some jaw-dropping scenes, and if you enjoyed the first season, binge it today, don't wait. But ultimately, the second season of Mindhunter left me a bit unsatisfied and wanting more. Oh. I know my opinion won't be popular, but as Ice-T says, eat a cold bowl of dicks. <laughs> <laughs> Peace out, Angela Hayden, Sydney, New South Wales. Well, you really do know how to write for she's, bloody murder, don't you, she's Angela? She's got a turn of phrase, doesn't she? She does. Thank you. Well, um, apparently there's going to be five seasons if David Fincher gets his way of Mindhunter. Oh, 
Good. Mm-hmm. Now, if you'd like to submit a true crime nerd time, rethink your life choices. Visit our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for instructions on how to do that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. All right, Barney. I believe it's time for you to get murdery. Before Mick Sayers was Melbourne Mick, he was just plain Mick. Mick, the eldest of four brothers, plopped out of his mum in Melbourne on April 16th, 1946. That's a nice way of putting it. Thank you. He grew up within spitting distance of the Caulfield racetrack, which was quite convenient for his dad as Mick's father was a bagman and an illegal bookmaker. Mick loved his sport, particularly footy and hockey, but what Mick really dug was getting into mischief and having the odd wager. Mick was a rambunctious rabble-rouser from an early age, always getting into trouble and dragging his little brothers with him. Though according to some people, he always protected them. His brother Robbie told a story on the Australian TV show Tough Nuts about when they were coming home from school. 15-year-old Mick said he couldn't be arsed walking and he wanted to pinch a car. (laughs) Scared little Robbie, who was 10 at the time, proceeded to bawl his eyes out. Mick put his arm around him and said, Don't worry about it, we'll walk home. Oh, that's lovely. By the age of 18, Mick had well and truly got the gambling bargain and was selling drugs and doing various other crimes, including car theft, burglary, assaulting police, kidnapping, attempting to bribe police and safe cracking, all to cover his huge losses. At 20, Mick hit the criminal big time and started robbing banks. In February 1969, he held up a Bank of New South Wales in the Melbourne Bayside suburb of Brighton. It wasn't long before he was caught and charged with armed robbery. Police had stacks of evidence on him, but couldn't locate the money. The Sayers family home was searched and backyard dug up, but the loot wasn't found. It didn't matter. At 23 years old, Mick was sent to prison for 13 years. His wife and two children were not thrilled about this turn of events. Uh, Did I mention that he got married and had kids? Well, yeah, you have now. Oh, good. Mick was down with prison life and quick sticks lickety split, he was running betting for the whole of Pentridge Prison. Now, being a starting price bookie or SP bookie in prison meant you had to command respect and have the screws on your side. Ah, screws. That's Aussie for prison guards. If someone welched on a bet, swift retribution was in order, which was no mean feat in Pentridge in the 1960s with Mick sharing his accommodations with the likes of murderer and drug dealer Dennis Allen and Mark Chopper Reed. Oh, they're both tough guys, they are. Mick knew how to bring it when needed. In fact, he has been described by one old school crim as a vicious little turd. (laughs) One day in the yard of H Division, Mick had to take on legendary street baller and hard man Stephen Sellers. This ferocious fight became legend. Mick didn't win the fight, but he held his own. Near the end of Mick's stretch in prison, he made a new friend, another vicious turd, Christopher, Mr. Rentakill Flannery. Ah, Mr. Rentacar. Soon to be notorious hitman Christopher had just copped a sentence of nine years for rape and a bunch of other things, including a few robberies and some gun charges. 
Mick and I Like Man Bags Christopher mm-hmm. became best pals. They braided each other's hair, <laughs> made friendship bracelets and plotted who they were going to fuck up when they got out. The problem was, Mick told his new BFF Christopher, that his name was Mud in Melbourne as he might have upset a few people and he just maybe might owe a few hard men quite a bit of cash. Like about $250,000 to the nasty Kane brothers. Ooh. Christopher asked what happened to the money from the armed robberies. Mick told him between his legal fees and a bit of a flutter on the GGs, it was all but gone. Oh, I hope he got a sweet tattoo of a jet ski on his back before he ran out. Well, no, nothing. Oh, damn it. Probably some prison tats. Yeah, of a jet ski. <laughs> <laughs> With a unicorn riding it. Yeah, yeah. A, a unicorn smoking a bong. <laughs> riding a jet ski. Yes. Oh, yeah. Sweet. Sweet. Sick. He also told his fine-feathered friend that the Kane brothers had already done a drive-by on his house and fired a shotgun blast through his kid's window. After explaining to Mick that he was not a bird, Christopher suggested a change of scenery and told him that Sydney was the place to be. Mick wasn't convinced. At that time, the Sydney underworld was controlled by the team. Lenny McPherson, George Freeman and Stan the Man Smith. He got, he got shot in his stand-the-man tit. He did? Yeah. Christopher countered with, those guys are a bunch of old cunts and their days are numbered. And besides, Sydney has the best cops that money can buy. And you're fucked if you stay here, son. Yeah. Well, truer words were never spoken. Upon release in 1973, Mick left his wife and children in Melbourne and relocated to Sydney. He's not going to win Husband of the Year, is he? No, probably not with a manoeuvre like that. He told himself he was doing the right thing and by leaving them, they would be safe. Yeah, I, I constantly have families and leave them just to protect them. Sydney in the early 70s was the Wild West, Tara. But compared to chaotic Melbourne, Sydney had an order to its underworld with plenty of career criminals working with corrupt police. I mean, these are the days of Roger Rogerson. Yeah. So, yeah. Feeling good about his future, Mick put on a brave face and dove headfirst in some criminal capers in his new hometown of Sydney. It did not go well. (laughs) Within weeks, Mick tried to break into a hotel safe, got busted and copped a conviction for burglary. (laughs) That saw him do four years in Long Bay Jail. Upon release, Mick decided it was time to do what he did best, illegal gambling. Was he really that good at it? No, he did all right in Pentridge. Okay. So he set himself up as an SP bookmaker and ran a few illegal casinos in Sydney and on the Gold Coast. The money rolled in and things were good, or so it seemed. But Mick was losing (laughs) massive amounts by gambling his profits away. Known as one of the biggest punters in Sydney, it wasn't unusual for him to put $200,000 on a horse or play poker with $100,000 chips. Ah, that's where the money goes. Yeah. Mick used to drink at the Royal Oak Hotel in Sydney, which was a hangout for a lot of old-school SP bookies in those days. One afternoon, Mick was sinking a few schooners with Graham Abbo Henry and Nettie Smith. Mick had a briefcase, and being the flamboyant, narcissistic guy he was, he had to show the lads the contents. Ah, show and tell. That's right. It was stacked with $200,000, and on top of the cash was a forty-five automatic. Look what I won today, he proudly told them. <laughs> And they were suitably impressed. Well, they weren't really. They just said, what the fuck are you showing me that? They they eat that shit for breakfast. Yeah. Between running his casinos and working the punters as an SP bookie, one of Mick's jobs was collection. Intimidating and standing over people to get them to pay was part of the gig. 
One of Mick's problem punters was Leslie John Cole. Oh, uh, he was a merry old soul. He wasn't. Oh. Another Melbourne dickhead who had come to <laughs> Sydney because things got too hot for him down south. Les Cole had worked as a standover man and was a former painter and docker who didn't do too well on the horses. Les Cole had been married to Judy Moran and was the father of Mark Moran, later killed by Carl Fatboy Williams. It was 1982 and Les Cole owed money all over town, with a big chunk of it owed to Mick Sayers. Mick wanted to send a message to all the other deadbeat Welchers and decided to make an example of Les. Mick hadn't taken a life before and was in two minds on how to get the job done. According to the TV show Tough Nuts, Mick climbed onto the roof of Les Cole's Sydney home and waited till Les walked out into his backyard. Mick shot at Les with a 22 rifle hitting him in the leg. The low calibre bullet didn't do too much damage and Les limped inside and called an ambulance. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Again? Again? <laughs> Three months later, on November 10th, 1982, Mick went back to finish the job. This time, Mick jimmied open Les's garage door and waited for Les to come home. Les Cole had spent some time in hospital for his leg wound and was getting physiotherapy. When Les pulled his car into the garage, Mick waited in the shadows, pistol drawn. As Les wobbled out of the car, cane in hand, Mick shot him twice in the chest and once in the head. Some media reports claim the murder was sanctioned by Judy Moran. According to the Advertiser newspaper, murderous matriarch Judy drunkenly bragged that her de facto partner, Louis Moran, paid Mick Sayer to kill Les Cole. Pissed Judy had told people, My Lewis proved his love for me by having him shot. <laughs> oh, that's so romantic, Judy. I know, isn't it? It's bloody romantic. Fun fact Judy Moran was a dreadful drunk and a crackerjack shoplifter. She was also a showgirl and appeared regularly on television in the 1960s on Graham Kennedy's In Melbourne Tonight and The Bongo Club. Oh, yeah. I heard she was the bongo in The Bongo Club. <laughs> What does that mean? I don't know, but it sounds wrong. Anyways, Mick Sayers was in deep and was up to his neck in debt. He probably should have kept his head down and worked off the money he owed, but Mick being Mick, he kept doing Mick stuff. (laughs) No shrinking violet, Mick loved his life of fast cars, fast women, and of course gambling big time. Mick thought he'd be alright, with the next big win just around the corner. Impulsive Mick was always looking for the next sure thing, but then it occurred to him, what if he created the next sure thing? Oh my God, that would make it double sure. That's right. Enter the fine cotton ring-in. Described by industry experts as the lowest point in Australian horse racing history. (laughs) Wasn't wasn't something to be proud of. No. The plan was simple. Substitute a ready-for-the-glue factory bush scrubber nag, fine cotton, with a thoroughbred champion and well-performing horse, Dashing Solitaire, who was a dead ringer for fine cotton. It did not go well, Tara. (laughs) Dashing Solitaire had an injury that prevented him from running, so Mick and his mates had to find another horse. With only a few days to come up with another champion, they settled on bold personality. It didn't work for you, did it, Tara? No, don't bet on bold personality. It can backfire miserably. (laughs) The thing, <laughs> the thing was, bold personality did not look like fine cotton. Fine cotton was an eight-year-old brown gelding with white markings on his hind legs, whereas bold personality was a seven-year-old bay gelding, a different shade of brown with no markings. It'll be okay, thought Mick. 
We'll dye his hair brown and paint on white socks. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Foolproof, right? Yeah, huh? Maybe. No. Mm-mm. Mick told too many people the fix was on, including George Freeman, whom Mick owed over $1 million. Now, George Freeman was no slouch when it came to the GGs. George had a 99% success rate in betting and had been fixing harness racing for years. You know, the trots. Oh, yeah. Love the trots. I've had those. Do you like the trots? No, that was quite unpleasant. (laughs) You don't have a flutter on the trots? (laughs) Something was fluttering when I had the trots. I don't think that a lady should talk about such a thing, and I don't think that I should either. (laughs) (laughs) On the 18th of August, 1984, race six at Eagle Farm in Queensland, Fine Cotton was considered to have fuck all chance of winning and opened at odds at 33 to 1. But as the morning wore on, the punters poured money onto Fine Cotton from all around Australia. Such was the avalanche of money that Fine Cotton eventually started at 7 to 2. How did it go, you asked Tara? How did it go, Barney? Well, let me attempt the race call. All righty, do it. Fine Cotton still in front, past the 200. Harbour Gold, inch by inch, is starting to pick up on him now. Oh, Hark, Harbour Gold's got up to Fine Cotton with 100 to go. They'll fight it out. Fine Cotton won't give in. Harbour Gold, Fine Cotton, Fine Cotton's going to hold him off. Oh, he's just in front. Oh, he might have won by a nose. There's nothing in it. Fine Cotton ended up beating race favourite Harbour Gold by a bee's dick. Like a really well-endowed bee or just a regular-sized bee? Well, the bee's dick is about the size of a horse's nose. So a very well-endowed oh, yeah. bee. Yeah. That like bee's a bee got a... porn star. Oh, that bee is a player. Hey, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Let me pollinate your flowers. Hey, baby, I'm a bee. <laughs> <laughs> the sophistication. That's what keeps people listening. Oh. That was when the horse shit hit the fan. The horse fan. <laughs> George Freeman had sent a few of his goons up to Brizzy to watch the race and to also inform race stewards about fine cotton. It didn't really matter though, Tara. There were already screams of ring in, ring in by the time fine cotton crossed the finish line. It didn't help that the paint was starting to run on his white socks. (laughs) And the dye job was pretty patchy too, apparently. They used human hair dye on the horse. It didn't really work. Oh, right. No, yeah. horses have uh, rather thick hair, I believe. Yes. Mm, not, not very human-like. They, no. don't u- they don't tend to use it for wigs, do they? No. A horsehair wig? No. no. You wouldn't wear that, would you? Fine cotton was disqualified. No. Yes. Trainers and horse owners got lifetime track bans and went to jail. Mick Sayers lost $1.5 million. George Freeman didn't lose anything. Mm. He put all his money on Harbour Gold, who was declared the winner. Keeps me searching for a harbour gold. Later that month, police searched Mick's Bronte home and found two handguns and a trafficable amount of cocaine, heroin and marijuana. Oh, wackety smackety. Yeah. Can't believe you didn't say that. Wackety smack. People call it that. No, they don't. Only you do. Mick says hadn't even bothered to hide the gun and drugs. All of these things were in plain sight, which made the cop's job nice and easy. Mick was arrested and then bailed. Soon he was back to his old tricks. <sighs> Mick tricks. The fine cotton ringing was a complete debacle for Mick Sayers. Instead of getting him out of the hole, it put him further into debt. He now owed $3 million. He needed money fast, and the fastest way to make it was with Australian podcasting. <laughs> no. <laughs> Heroin. 
Heroin. Oh, oh, drugs. I, I don't know, man. I can't drugs, find drugs, drugs. anything in my house because of all the piles of money everywhere. It's becoming uh, a problem. Yeah. Like I can't spend it fast enough. Danny Chubb was a seaman who brought in massive amounts of heroin and who stupidly extended a line of credit to Mick Sayers. Melbourne Mick called on his old BFF Christopher Mr. Rentakill Flannery to help him make his chubby debt go away. After a long drinking session with his mates Nettie Smith and Graham Henry at the Captain Cook Hotel at Miller's Point, Chubb drove to his mother's house for lunch. As he got out of his car, Mick shot him five times with a pistol. If that wasn't enough, Christopher Flannery finished him off with a shotgun blast. Media reported that Chubb was unemployed at the time of his demise, yet he owned a late-model Jaguar, multiple properties and assets valued at $7 million, including $2 million in a Swiss bank account. Ah, oh man, the doll paid so much more back then. It really did. A police investigation revealed that Chubb was a major heroin importer and had a huge network of distributors. Yeah, yeah, he used to um, import for Nettie Smith too. Yeah. The word on the street was Mick Sayers owed Chubb $500,000. Ah, is that how much it cost? No one was ever found guilty for the murder of Danny Chubb. By the end of 1984, Mick Sayers was desperate and owed upwards of $2.5 million. Mick saw new emerging heroin kingpin Barry McCann as a possible answer. Mick met McCann in a car park of a Glebe hotel. McCann had a briefcase full of the wackety smackety, <laughs> the heroin. He handed it over to Mick. Mick said, thanks, Barry. I'll just go and get the money. Ten minutes later, Mick returned, shirt torn and bloody. You wouldn't believe what happened to me, Barry. I got <laughs> robbed. They took the money and the drugs. Now, Barry McCann frowned. This wasn't his first rodeo. Mm-mm. I want my money, or I want my heroin, or you're dead. You've got a week. Man, a few words. Yeah, no, he doesn't tolerate no fools. Well, no, why should he? No. On February 16th, 1985, Mick Sayers' luck finally ran out, which is ironic as he just had a big win at the races for a change and was feeling pretty chuffed. Oh, well, you know, it's something, I guess. As he pulled into his driveway in his red Mercedes sedan in Hewitt Street, Bronte, Three gunmen were waiting. Mick had to get out of his car to open the garage door as he had forgot to get batteries for the remote. As he did so, he was shot from both sides. Mick staggered and tried to run away, but a third shooter finished him off with a rifle. At the time of Mick Say's death, he was unemployed and yet had several properties in Sydney and Melbourne worth over a half a million dollars. He also owned four racehorses, probably not very good ones though, and a brand new Mercedes. Wow. His game of robbing Peter to pay Paul was finally at an end. Word is the hit was organised by Barry McCann, who would also die by gunfire two years later. Mick had told family and friends it was only a matter of time before he would get got. He was right. Yeah, he was. He's a better psychic than Brenda. (laughs) Yeah, I'll say. Wow. Very interesting. Oh, Yet well, another piece of the, the like Aussie gangland puzzle, huh? Yeah, I like that time. Sydney yeah. in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, it was well, crazy. They're, they're, they're pretty uh, kind of amusing in that they don't have a lot of fear or a lot of smarts, some of them. Yeah. Yeah, everything changed in the 70s too when the drugs started. Oh, God, Bef- yeah. Before that, it was, it was all extortion rackets and, you know, standover, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Prostitution, gambling. But then the drugs came and they could make more 
in a week than I'd make in a year of all the other rackets. Well, it made them more killy as well because the, the stakes were higher. Stakes were a lot higher. Hmm. Hey, I've got a question for you. Yes, Barney? What is Aussie As? Aussie As are tales of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? That'd be nice. Excellent. I shall read one to you now. Good. (laughs) Gold Coast Police recently released a bolo for a rather unique-looking individual over a string of rather unique robberies. Oh, bolo. Be on the lookout. That's the one. The man, believed to be in his 20s, had a receding mullet and numerous facial tattoos. You know how the old saying goes... If you want to say something, say it with a face tattoo. Well, this particular bloke's face said, never take my soul and death before dishonour. (laughs) Now, do you want to hazard a guess about what kind of uh, unique crimes he committed, Barney? Illegal pantage. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's no such thing as legal pantage, so that's possible. Uh, No, tell me, please. Well, the first crime he was wanted for went down at a sex shop in Oxenford on June 18th when our mulleted mate asked to look at a number of sexy time items from a display case. Oh, there must be special ones if they're behind a display case. Yeah, yeah. He probably just wanted to like feel like, can you please get me that blue dildo? I want to see what kind of weight it's got. Oh, yeah, you mean, you've got to see, you know, you've got to, you've got to bond with it. Yeah, yeah. you've got to see if it's going to be your Brenda. <laughs> That's right. So uh, after they, they got out all the sex toys for him, uh, he then grabbed several of them in his sweaty clutches before scampering out of the store as fast as his little mulleted legs could carry him. The Gold Coast Bulletin reported that the items he stole included a $100 buddy wand, a USB personal massager, a $250 pulse wave vibrator and a $130 Trist multi-erogenous zone massager. I think that's for his bum. Oh, that's a good one. That's got Bluetooth. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. you know, you want to be able to... You can put your podcast in your butt. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually how I listen to mine. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, you can feel them more. Yeah, you yeah, can. You know, just, not just through your ears and your heart, but also through your bum. I, it's, it's like a suppository of stories. Oh, yeah. Now, the same guy was believed to be behind another robbery at a Surfers Paradise convenience store a week later. Now, this time, the little nugget helped himself to a five-finger discount by stealing a mobile phone and some sour gecko lollies. Oh, they're yum. He was also suspected of organising to meet a woman in a car park to finalise the sale of her iPhone 8 for $700. He then allegedly snatched the phone from the woman's hand and scampered away again. Ugh. Now, police believe he broke into a house in Southport and stole two cars, as well as using stolen bank cards he pinched after breaking into a third car. I wonder if he got himself a new face tattoo. Actually, there's no room left. I showed you him. He's got, it looks like kids have drawn all over him. Hey, uh, this is a recent story, right? Yeah, yeah, June this, uh, so this year. So that 700 bucks for an iPhone 8, eh? Yeah, I was thinking that too. That's... I reckon you could do better. Yeah, I, I, but I gave you my iPhone 8. One of your kids got, got my s- shit phone. I got could have got seven hundred bucks for you it. You got seven hundred dollars worth of fucking friendship though, didn't you, Barney? Oh yeah, it sounds like <laughs> it, doesn't it? I'm getting. It, am I getting it now? Tell me when I'm telling. This tell is seven hundred dollars. You fucking idiot. Yeah, am I? You giving it to me? I'm feeling it. Yeah, this is it. I'm you feeling, know what? You know you you feel it more if you stick it up your ass. I, I, I'm feeling it. You know, I'm feeling something. Yeah, and it feels like itchiness or yeah. like I, I don't know, like, like rage, like anger and itchiness at the same time. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's, that's my friendship. That's a friendship. That is my friendship. Oh fuck. It might also feel like some inappropriate back of the knee tickling. Oh god. Oh, yeah, mm, I know how much you like that.
Some guy who hit on me once was doing that. I was just like, dude, really? <laughs> now, the man was recently caught and arrested. I'm not sure how they got him, but I imagine it involved setting a trap involving a car full of sour lollies, mobile phones, bank cards, and big fluorescent pink dildos. MyGoldCoast.com.au reported that he was charged with a cavalcade of offences, including six counts of stealing, two counts of using counterfeit money, one count of burglary, one count of entering premises to commit an indictable offence, and one count of receiving tainted property. Ah, the Tara taint. It's Mm -hmm. back. Tainted property that he may have planned to use to romance his own taint. Ah, the Tara taint part two, Mm -hmm. the tainting. Death before dishonour, indeed. His face tattoo, it was true. I don't know. I don't think there's a lot of honour in stealing sex toys. No, there's there's no honour between thieves who steal no. sex toys? No. Is that how the saying goes? I, I believe it is. Well, you know what, though? He's a little bit Aussie as, isn't he? So thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. If you'd like to support us, visit our website. Or if you just want to buy us a drink, there's a PayPal donate button there too. And you know who's buying the drinks today? Nope. Siobhan Clare. Hey, thank you so much, Siobhan. I can't wait to get stuck into one of those. Oh, yeah. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes. And, of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. You can follow us on our Facebook page or join our group. On Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod. And on Insta, we're Bloody underscore Murder underscore Podcast. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for news, galleries, more episodes and merchandise. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back soon whether you like it or not. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. Hey, I was driving uh, Dexter to school this morning and he tried to tell me a joke. Oh, God, really? How long did it take? (laughs) He's only 11. I don't know if he's been listening to me watch true crime in the other room, docos and so forth, but he said to me, okay, they're at a murder scene. And the coroner says to someone next to him, he says, what's the time? And the guy says, it's hammer time. And the coroner writes on his form, time of death, hammer time. (laughs) Was there dancing? Please tell me there was dancing. Well, we're in the car, but I'm assuming it was hammer time. (laughs) I I don't know. I I thought it was funny that he attempted it, though. (laughs) Well, yeah, I I enjoy the fact that he obviously made it up. Yeah, he did. (laughs) So I think that's good, working his little brain. I know. Getting little brain muscles, building them up out there. I know, that's, yeah. He's a funny kid, that one. He really is. We need to get him in more photos with his little mask on. I was driving the other day. I was picking my nose and I got this big booger. And then I, I was concentrating on driving. The booger's still on my finger. And then I got an itchy ear and I scratched my ear and the booger went in my ear and then the booger didn't come out of my ear. So you now have a booger in your ear with your gunshot residue earwax. I think I've still got a booger in my ear. (laughs) (laughs) Am I going to die? Coincidentally, that is the name of your fourth album. I have a booger in my ear. (laughs) Uh, I couldn't hear it because I got a booger in my ear. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a funny thing to do. Mostly it was for extorting and deceiving people and pinching stuff. What kind of apple? Ah, oh, pink lady. Red delicious, uh, perhaps. Hey, I was looking at this apple chart the other day. Like, at the, like iTunes? 
No, no, different apple chart on on the sweetness of apples. Uh, like an, an actual chart about apples. Yeah, where, yeah. Where so, were you and why was well, this happening? Hey, I have a very varied and interesting life. I, I look at <laughs> lots of things. So, <laughs> so yeah, true. so what do you think the most tart apple is? Oh, probably the anus tart apple. The Granny Smith is the most tart apple. Mm-hmm. And the most sweetest apple is about is a Fuji apple. So are apples like universal or will only our Australian listeners understand what you're saying? Well, I'm not an expert on apples. I mean, you know, you well, think I am. Well, you're the one who read the chart. I did look at the chart. It was very interesting. Did you memorise every single placing on the apple bitterness chart? <laughs> Where did I place? Pretty high, I would say. I reckon you're pretty near the Granny Smith, I'd say. <laughs> pretty bloody tart over here, <laughs> yeah, aren't yeah, I? Yeah, you are a bit of a tart. Yeah. <sighs> And bitter. Did I mention bitter? <laughs> I'm full of seeds. Oh, bitter and seedy. Uh, yeah. And my uh, my seeds are rotting. Unusually crunchy. <laughs> but flowery at the same but time. But flowery at the same time. <laughs> Bruised. Bruised. <laughs> Only good for cooking uh, with. Full of worms. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I get one of them out, uh, another one just slips back in. That's how you end up full of worms. Does does the apple plop far from the tree? (laughs) I think it does. Listen, this apple rolled, baby. (sighs) Does the apple plop far from the tree? What does that even mean? It's just Barney saying Barney shit. (laughs) That's how I figure Uh, it. It's just fucking noise to me now. Yeah, pretty much. Like plop, plop, plop. Oh, Barney's talking ploppity, ploppity, plop, plop. Oh, come on. (laughs) That's all I hear when you talk. Come on. Are you up to page three? I think you're way past I'm page three. I'm on page three. fucking five. I'm surprised that you're still at me. <laughs> it's like when I'm trying uh, to eat in front of the dog. She just won't let it go. Oh, fuck. I'll, I'll be at you, man. Come on. Uh, come on, Trash Panda. Pound I'll it out. Come at me. Trash Panda, pound come it out. Come at me, Frog Bottom. <laughs> come on. <laughs> What's up the run with my bottom? It's froggy. That's all I'm saying on the matter. Some have, people are into that. I have a gentleman's bottom. You have an amphibian's bottom. <laughs> It's green as well. I've seen it. Is it is not it, green. It is green and slimy. <laughs> it's not green and slimy. That's not true. It's completely true. All the listeners uh, know now. Uh, <laughs> hey, I, I, I educated you about apples. You did, but you know what? I could have lived without that. Oh, I don't know. Well, it ended up in me being a really rotten one that was full of worms. I mean, it wasn't like it didn't go that well for Look, me, that apple conversation. It's going to pop up pop up in conversation one day and you'll know stuff and you'll be out and people will go, oh, yeah, that Tara's pretty cool. She knows shit about apples. Oh, yeah. I don't foresee that happening, but I'll let I you know could. if it does. It could. Who would I be talking to? Farmers? Yeah. They're visiting. They come down to the city to Apple visit. Apple farmers. Apple farmers. You I, meet them at, at the pub. At some point in my life, it, I'll be having an important conversation with a whole bunch of apple farmers, and that information's going to somehow get us over the line. That's we'll, right. And then we'll become rich. Lives will be saved. And we'll get rich and save lives from That's my right. apple knowledge. That's right. People should eat more apples. Less meat, more apples. That's what I say. I eat apples. Hey, um, when I was a teenager... When I was going to high school, my friend and I were walking home from school and we found a, a, a vibrator on the side of the road and it had Brenda written on it. Maybe it was Brenda's. Did it have Lady Monica written on the other side? <laughs> no, it didn't. It just had Brenda written on it. And my friend my friend grabbed it and put fresh batteries in it because the batteries in it were flat and he used to wave it at girls to make him go, ah, and they'd run away. Not traditionally how vibrators are meant to work, is it? 
No, we didn't know what, what the hell you did. Well, right? those vibrators are meant to bring all the girls to the yard. Well, I don't know. What, Brenda was in the car with it and went, oh, fuck this shit. I'm getting a new one and threw it out the window. Is well, that no how way. I got there? I mean, it, it does beg the question, was the vibrator named Brenda or did it belong to someone called Brenda who wrote her name on it? Well, that's right. And should have we should we have knocked on doors and say, are you Brenda? Is this yours? Hello, I'm Brenda. <laughs> are you missing something? Yeah. Yeah, you're feeling a little lighter at the moment, Brenda. Do you know anybody called Brenda? I moved into his apartment once, Tara. Mm-hmm. And um, this is not going to have anything to do with what I'm talking about. Is no, it, it no, has. Of it not. has. Of course, it doesn't. I moved in. <laughs> I moved into this apartment <laughs> once, and I finally got the power on. It took a day to get the electricity up, mm-hmm. and I turn the light on. No lights. All the light bulbs in the entire apartment were gone. Oh, Brenda must have been there before you. She took all the light bulbs. She, they she took, would have. A, who, what kind of cunt takes all the light bulbs? Ah, oh, the kind of cunt that would probably take the toilet seat too. <sighs> Was there a toilet seat or did you have to fashion one out of papier-mâché? <laughs> <laughs> I did, but it did not last very long. No, did it get a little damp? It got a little damp. Oh, it fell that's apart. that's very nice. I once made this ship out of icy pole sticks. Yeah. With glue, PVC glue. And it took me hours and to you make put it on in water and then it fell apart. Yeah. How do you know? <laughs> because <laughs> put... I'm psychic, Barney. I put it in the bath and it just it because it dissolves in water, that glue. And it just fell apart. That, it... That's a sad story. I'm little... sorry to hear that. It probably explains a lot about why you are the way you are. I had a little cry. Yeah. Yeah. I was about 25. <laughs> <laughs> and by a little cry, you meant you fucking bowled your oh, eyes man, out. You, you bowled know? until you got hiccups, didn't you? Don't that, yeah, and snot comes out of oh, your eyes. Oh, and that just melts the glue even more. Melts the glue Gets even in more. your ears. Gets in your ears. <laughs> in your ass. She loves pinching shit, doesn't she? Oh, she fucking loves it. Does she loves she... it ripping people off, using dumb names. Does she like pinching bottoms? Well, she likes shit, and that's where it comes from. You can't pinch bottoms and ask and say, "Make us a cup of tea, love." That's not cool anymore. Was it ever cool? No. I was watching an episode of Mash last night, and I was like, "Oh, that's right, Mash. Oh, nostalgia." And then, like before Henry leaves, he like forcibly kisses Hot Lips Houlihan, and she wasn't into it. And I was like, "Oh, sexual harassment in front of a crowd who think it's funny." Yay. Yeah. Yay. Yeah, but Klinger ate a Jeep, and that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. You know, every say it's every time I say Brenda now, I'm thinking about that vibrator. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that, Barney. Well, that's all right. It's I, a I, gift that keeps on vibrating. I think it does. I wish I still had it. Yeah. You know? Well, maybe my friend does. <laughs> was it pink? It was white. Oh, God. Who buys a white vibrator after Labor Day? Maybe it was faded. <laughs> used to be pink, but well, it maybe it was out. left out in the sun. Well, okay, yeah. It was in the gutter. If we, if there'd been a big rainstorm, it would have got washed away. And it ended up in a dolphin's blowhole. It ended up in a dolphin's blowhole. That's right. Oh, Brenda. So us picking up that vibrator saved a dolphin's life. Maybe the dolphin was into it. Yeah, that's what they breathe through, though. Mm. Some people are... <laughs> what does that even mean? Means apparently some chicks like being choked, but I've never met them, and no. I don't. I don't want any. I like being able to breathe. I think it's nice. Anyway, Mick was deep. <laughs> no, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. <laughs> Still waters run deep. <laughs> no, they don't. No, they don't. <laughs> it's a fucking puddle of a man. 
Oh, yeah. <clears throat> a puddle of a man. A shallow <laughs> puddle of a man. Uh, at least he's not a rapist like most of them were. Mick staggered and tried to run away, but a third shooter finished him off with a rifle. Not sexually. No, no. <laughs> that's not, you, you wouldn't use a rifle. You'd use Brenda. You'd use Brenda. <laughs> that's a way to finish yeah, I mean, you off. Come on. Come on, Brenda. Yeah, come on. Oh, well, if he didn't get new batteries for the remote, I mean, maybe he didn't have new batteries, <laughs> batteries for, for Brenda, Brenda either. I'm like, yeah. ooh, whoops. Ooh. Or maybe he'd taken the batteries out of the remote for the garage to put into Brenda. Oh, I'm nearly done. Can you finish me off, Brenda? <laughs> <laughs> I like that he talks like Bartas. <laughs> They kept lying that it wasn't on, and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 